The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. Thanks for joining us for Faculty Futures Lab. My name is Joanna Brooks, and I'm Associate Vice President for Faculty Advancement and Student Success at San Diego State University. And this is our third episode featuring the winners of our Faculty Forward Spring 2020 Awards, Dr. Nathan Rodriguez from Journalism and Media Studies and Dr. Melissa Soto from the School of Teacher Education. And listening for this beautiful conversation with Professor Sarah Elkind, who's our director for the Center of Teaching and Learning and a professor in history about teaching the tough stuff, race, gender, sexuality, and math. You're going to hear some wisdom about how to find your students on the digital platforms where they're already hanging out and how to build trust in a time of fear. And there's going to be some talk about Selena. It's a really good one. So enjoy. And for more information or for support, visit the Center for Teaching and Learning, ctl.sdsu.edu. Why don't we start with you, Melissa? Yeah, sure. So I have to be honest, I'm a little uh, I'm a little unconventional in this that I was I got this award and I wasn't really quite sure, like, was I supposed to get this? But I don't want anybody to know about that. So maybe we'll cut that out of the out of the, the scene. But um, so I I um, as an associate professor, I'm also part of the, the San Diego Math Project. And so what we do is we provide professional development for teachers and students throughout the San Diego County area. And I feel like this really aligns with the, with the I feel like this really aligns with the California State University mission of like providing public services to the community and to the, to the university. And what we decided to do was we've always provided professional development to teachers and students throughout the county. We've done this live, but what I started to notice, especially on Twitter, was that the schools around the county started shutting down really fast and nobody really knew what was happening. And so we decided to provide these professional development series online for K through six, really K through 12 teachers and try to support them in providing meaningful mathematics instruction to their students. We were really worried about, because we didn't know how long the shutdown was going to be, that mathematics instruction was going to just turn into worksheets and just drill on the computer. And so we really wanted to provide opportunities for teachers to engage their students in mathematics virtually. And so one of the things that we really try to support is this use of manipulatives. And so it's really these objects that students are able to move around and manipulate to be able to make sense of mathematics, but without having those physical objects in their hands, many teachers resorted to building kits for their students and sending them home. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not really possible for many students and many teachers because either there's a lack of manipulatives or just reaching out to the students. Sometimes they may not be able to get in contact with them. So we wanted to see how we could support them virtually. And so there are, there's been a real um, push to create real nice, meaningful, powerful, 
virtual manipulatives these last couple of years. And so I really wanted to support teachers in using these tools to help support um, their students in making sense of math. So we did some workshops for, for teachers online. We invited students, current, former students, and we really didn't think this was going to amount to anything. We thought that teachers were gonna be and students were gonna be really overwhelmed but it exploded and we had like over 150 teachers that signed up and attended these workshops. And it wasn't just local, it was nationwide. We had teachers from Florida, we had teachers from Massachusetts. We even had teachers from China that joined us. So it went global. Wow. It, was, it was just, it was really exciting to see the passion that teachers had and the need that teachers had to find ways to support their students in making sense of math. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So how do you how did teachers find out about about this these workshops? So one of the things that we did was Twitter was a really big tool for us. So we started to advertise online with Twitter. We also have um, a database of former students, their email addresses. And so we just started sending email blasts out to, to former students, to teachers. And they just started talking to each other. I think it was so new that, you know, the shutdown and everything happening that districts, I'm not sure if districts knew what to do. And so there wasn't a lot of support, I think, out there. And so we were sort of like the first ones out, like, hey, here it is. Let's, let's, how can we support you? And I think that a lot of teachers were really excited to learn about tools that they could use right now in the mm -hmm. moment to help them make, mm -hmm. you know, to, to help their students. And so I think that's what really just word of mouth and, and Twitter, Twitter's awesome. Just <laughs> explodes. Super exciting. Yeah. Nathan, what were you, what, what did, what inspired you to, to do the things that you did? Students, students always inspire me for all the choices that I make in my class outside of the class and I think when the pandemic hit, there was an initial reaction of what, what's going to happen with the students? How are they going to cope? It was always like thinking about them first and then me, um, which tends to be the way I operate most of, most of my life. So when the pandemic was starting to kind of gather strength and we saw schools were closing all over the country, um, I knew that inevitably San Diego State University was also going to have a closure. And so I started thinking, what do I need to do to be able to help my students? I identify as a queer professor of color. And my identity is intertwined with my service and my teaching. I cannot separate it. And so I think about all of those students who also have marginalized identities and how they would be reacting. One of the classes that I was teaching in the spring of 2020 was the new Selena class, Selena and Latinx Media Representation. And the class has predominantly students in there that belong to Latinx, Hispanx, and Chicanx identities. A lot of them identified as DACA, first generation, um, Pell eligible students. And so the class was really a place that was conducive for conversation about their identities. It was a space that was crafted and created that was unlike anywhere else on campus, specifically in journalism and media studies where I teach, that those conversations weren't happening. So in the face-to-face -face class, we were meeting in a learning research studio. Students were grouped um, into small groups of about five to six, and we facilitated small conversations first in the groups and then shared to the larger classroom, which helped with a lot of the um, 
topics that we were covering. The class, uh, although Selena is the name of the class, it did focus a lot on identity, on culture, on socio-political topics that were happening at the border, that were happening here in San Diego and in their, their, their lives. And so for me, it was how was I going to take that space and move it online. So that right there was my concern. And what motivated me to make the changes that I made was that I had that in mind. I needed a cultural space that was conducive for the learning of marginalized populations, um, specifically marginalized students. So how are you... So in the spring, you had the benefit of creating the sense of community and trust in these smaller groups and then larger groups because you were meeting in person. I, I assume from the passion with which you talk about this and from what I know from conversations you and I have had together that you're going to do this, you're going to try and create this community again now that we're all online. So what's, what's, your, what's your plan for doing that? And, and part of the reason I'm asking this is this is a real concern for lots and lots of faculty is how do we create that sense of community and trust in this in this kind of a teaching environment? Yeah, so I, I think that there's many ways to do that. And I think it starts with the professor, the instructor who is in charge of the class. I think said person needs to be comfortable with teaching in virtual online modalities. I think that there needs to be some sort of training in some capacity. SDSU did the Summer Faculty Institute at ITS, which was great. I was a peer mentor for that. So I think it all starts with the instructor because if the instructor is not comfortable, if the instructor is not knowledgeable and the instructor is not motivated, then everything after that is just not going to magically fall into place um, in the class. So I think that's where it starts is with the instructor. I think the university is doing a good job right now of fostering kind of the support needed for instructors to be able to learn how to navigate the classroom. But there also has to be a motivation in the instructor too. You have to sign up for these trainings. You have to go to the trainings. You have to, you know, make yourself available and sometimes I think vulnerable, right? Because a lot of us have been teaching for a long time and sometimes we think, oh, I know it all or I don't want to teach online. I'm going to fight tooth and nail to be face-to-face. So I think there needs to be some kind of openness some kind of vulnerability with faculty as well um, to be able to, to teach these classes. And I think once you get that, there is... What I operate from at all times when my teaching is transparency and accountability. I like to be transparent 100% with my students. I like to talk with them and I ask them to be transparent with me so that we have an actual conversation. That first day of class is more than just a syllabus day. It's getting to know you and I wanna know about you. What are the challenges that you face? Where are you at? What are you doing in your leisure time? Because what I noticed in my spring class is that when I started finding ways to craft the course uh, and, and migrate it on to a virtual platform, I was looking for places that students were already at. I didn't wanna add more stress to them and make them learn a whole new different platform. I wanted to meet them where they were at to make them feel comfortable. And so a lot of the the things that I started changing was how am I going to do this assignment, but instead use Netflix, use Hulu, because they're already using that, Twitter, use Facebook, use Instagram. Um, I had them making memes. And so I think looking at where the students are at, listening to your students, right? Y'all having this reciprocal uh, transparency is key. And the other one too is just accountability, right? Um, What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? Be open to feedback from students. If you messed up, if you missed a date, maybe you don't know 100% how to use Zoom. You don't know 100% how to use Canvas. Be honest and upfront, but be accountable for it. That was my bad. Let me find ways to make this semester or any semester, whether it's a pandemic or not, something that is, I think, more conducive to the learning of students. Yes, but I wanted, what is the word that I'm looking for? I have, I'm lost for words at the moment. 
So it sounds like part of what you're saying is um, that, so part of what it sounds like you're saying Nate, is that you're kind of running this line between using using platforms that the students are comfortable with, getting comfortable with those platforms yourself, and uh, being forthright when you mess up or when yep. something goes wrong. Like saying, look, we're going to do this. I don't know how to do it really. So we're going to work together and figure it out. Is yes. that? I, I think that's, that's totally correct. And I think any instructor will tell you that they learn from their students as much as the students learn from them. And I think it's a process that both student and instructor were, were learning together in real time, especially in the fall, uh, excuse me, especially in the spring of 2020, because right. you just had to do, you know, this pivot really, really quickly. Right, right. Um, so what, uh, why don't you say a little bit more, seeing as you're already sort of um, talking about this, why don't you say a little bit more, Nate, about what it is that you think uh, was kind of the coolest thing, the, the most effective thing that you did in the spring? or how you made the changes that you just described work? Yes, so specifically for the Selena class in Latinx Media Representation, it was about creating assignments that achieved the learning outcomes. And I know that I think the first reaction for a lot of faculty was how do I replicate exactly this course online? And for me, that wasn't the option. That wasn't what I thought about, mainly because I've had training and teaching online classes before, which was the big difference. And I think that's why training is so essential. So I started thinking, how am I going to meet the learning outcomes? What were some of the projects they were doing? They were going to go to Barrio Logan. They were going to go to a Selena market. They were going to go to a Selena drag show. They were going to do all this critical cultural research that then had been taken away during the pandemic. So there was two main assignments that I found that would be, I think, similar in terms of instigating that critical cultural thinking, but also be creative. Uh, and instigate their creativity as well, too. And the first one was called a Latinx Netflix. And so what I did is I had them look for uh, different representations of Hispanics, Chicanx, and Latinx uh, shows and movies and documentaries on Netflix and conduct a critical cultural analysis over that. They were talking about absence and representation. And they used an online, free online platform called Canva.com to create different types of uh, character analyses And so they were able to work with pictures and graphics and colors and design this one-page character analysis that they then uh, presented in class and turned in. And so for them, it was about uh, interacting with the medium that they were already interacting with, Netflix, going on Canva, which is very, very um, easy to use. And we had already been experimenting with it earlier on in the semester. So I think that felt made them feel comfortable. And they also learned a lot out of it, right? It wasn't just busy work. It was an assignment that they learned from. Uh, the second one was uh, a meme-making project. And so we were talking about Marianismo and Machismo, which is basically masculinity and femininity, but in a Latinx context, um, gender roles. And we were talking about that. We we're looking at the Joteria theory, and I wanted them to make memes. And so we got on the Zoom call. We broke out into uh, little groups. We used Joteria as the theory to drive uh, the meme search. They looked for pictures, and then they created their own memes that either helped perpetuate or kind of uh, counter these 
portrayals of Marianismo and Machismo that we see in pop culture. So then they made the memes, they presented them on Zoom again when we came to the larger Zoom room and the students loved it. And I loved it because I got to see their creativity and I got to see exactly what they were doing in real time. And the students are just amazing. That sounds so cool. That sounds super cool. What, what really strikes me is the way you were asking the same questions, but of different media, right? So you've taken the core of the, the core concept of your, of, your, of your original syllabus and just shifted the platform that you were looking at, shifted the location, Yes, and I think that's, it's so important whenever you're looking at your courses, those slows, right? The student learning outcomes are so important because then you're able to take those learning outcomes and if a different instructor is teaching it, they can modify the class and still teach the same content the students are supposed yeah. to be learning or modify it to any kind of virtual modality, face-to-face modality, a hybrid of the two. So, Melissa, was, um, was your approach, your approach seems really different. So if if Nate's approach was, let me, I, I have this big question that I want to ask, and I'm going to ask it of a different batch of, of cultural content. Your question was kind of the same, like, what do we do for manipulatives now? But it's also really, really different. Can you say a little bit more about um, what surprised you about the, like, about the model that you were using and why you think it worked and kind of step back and do that kind of a. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, what's always been important is always students mathematical thinking. That's always at the heart of everything that I do. And so I wanted, as Nate was saying, right. It's not about just taking what you did in face to face and trying to do it online. I think that you need to, to sort of modify things and think about how can you use the space in ways that are going to be transformative and, and, and meet your goals. And so for me, always, again, my goal has always been focusing on students' math thinking, but also providing resources for teachers, but not that they were just always coming from me. Like I didn't want to spend an hour just talking to them and telling them about the virtual manipulatives or how they can teach online, um, you know, successfully. I really wanted them to experience what it would be like to successfully engage in mathematics online. So for me, what was really important was providing opportunities for the teachers to engage in the manipulatives. Mm. So I would, I would give them a task and I would say, now I want you to go to this website and we would post the website on the chat and we would say, go out and just play. Or we gave like a specific task. Like I want you to solve this problem. So how might you use these manipulatives to solve these problems? And I think one thing that was really great was that I didn't know what was going to happen. Like we, we had assumed that the, you know, the tools could be used in certain ways, but we really pushed the tools because we had so many teachers online. One of the tools we used was like was Google Jamboard. And we sent 200 teachers out on Google Jamboard to, to do a task. And we didn't realize that Google Jamboard only allows 50 participants. And so many of them were locked out of it. And so it was just sort of this like, okay, this is great. And I think what I tried to do was model this, like if things, things aren't going to go as expected. And so Mm -hmm. trying to model like, okay, so what do we do now? All right. And so people were saying, well, I, I went on, I did my task and now I'm off. So maybe somebody else could try to get on. And so it wasn't about being perfect and it wasn't about, um, about 
yeah, it wasn't about being perfect. It was about allowing them to play and to explore and find out what's not going to work so that when they do work with their students, perhaps they'll have some sort of insight as to, I experienced this when I was in the, in the workshop. So maybe I might want to change this. I might want to adjust this. Um, so giving them that option and that experience to, to play with purpose, but also in a, in a kind of a risk-free environment so that they can mess up and see the, the tweaks or the things that aren't going to work so they can adjust that for their own students. So one of the questions that I've heard a lot of people asking this semester is how do we teach, uh, how do we create community and how do we, um, how do we create a uh, foster participation where people have to take risks to talk about the issues that, that we, we need to talk about? So what do we do around controversial political topics? What do we do around talking about um, topics of identity or topics of cultural, um, cultural ideologies or cultural artifacts, which, which really requires students to expose themselves and to, and to, as I said, take those risks. Um, and Melissa, what you just, the reason I'm saying this is what you were just describing is uh, creating an environment where teachers are willing to try stuff out that they don't know if it's going to work. It's risky, but they're also older, right? They're not 19. They're you know, enough older so that some of that fear of being judged is kind of worn off a little bit. Um, and anybody who's been in a classroom for a little while has to get pretty used to making a fool of themselves because it's going to happen all the time. So what, so what do you, what would your advice be or what is the, what are the things that you would do or try to do to try and create that environment where, where students in your classrooms trust each other enough to take those risks? a good question. I think for me, what I've tried to do is I've tried to, um, I guess, be myself. I tried to just sort of, you know, tell them. I think what I did was I, I always started each of my sessions with like, so I'm going to share some information with you. It may not work. Um, I'm not an online teaching expert, um, but these are just some of the things that I've, I've experienced. These are some of the research that I've been reading about. And so I'm going to share it with you in hopes that you give it a try. You, you sort of think about what's going to work for you and your students. And some things may not work, but I think we also have to have, um, I ask them for grace, you know, like, please be gracious with me, be gracious with your, your fellow colleagues because they may be in different situations that we're not quite sure of. And so I think I try to come across as human. And so that humanistic side is really important. And I think it's, and I always try to go back to, it's all about the students. It's all about the kids, right? Like we really want them to succeed. And I know that you want them to succeed because you wouldn't be here if you, you know, if you didn't want them to succeed. I'm not saying that, you know, teachers maybe had issues or whatever, but, you know, they couldn't attend. But I, I think that there's a stereotype or the stigma that teachers, you know, like, oh, they're only there for the money or they're, you know, for the, for the nine months out of the year, but teachers work really hard and they are amazing. And everything that they've been trying to do to support their students should be like, they should be just getting millions and millions of dollars for their, for their efforts. And, um, and so I think that 
just trying to support them and, and thank them. I always thank them at the end, you know, thanks for being here. Really appreciate you you're, you're taking the time to come and, and just, you know, think about your students. So I think just, again, trying to, to always go back to, it's all about the students, as Nate said, it's all about the students. It's all about creating environments for them to engage in these activities and these ideas. Nate, do you, how would you answer that question? I absolutely love Melissa's answer. We need to normalize humanizing ourselves because I think that's, that's instrumental in how students then become comfortable themselves. I mean, the number one fear, right? Or maybe not number one, but one of the biggest fears is public speaking. I think when you're in a lecture hall, that is very apparent when the professor or the instructor is up in the front lecturing and all the students are around. And if you have to give a presentation or talk, then you're like, oh my God, I don't want to. Or if you have to answer a question, all of a sudden you're at the center of attention. Does the instructor call attention to you? Do they make fun of you? Do they tell you the answer is wrong, that your answer is dumb? Right. So I think that also plays into it as well, too, right? The environment that the instructor, and I always start with the instructor because that person is the one that is crafting and creating this environment. And it's going to be as safe and as sharing or as rigid and tense as that instructor is, right? So I think the idea of humanizing yourself, being open, every single beginning of the semester, I tell the students my positionality. Look, here is who I am. I am not perfect. I am trying. This is my, only my fifth year in, as a professor here at San Diego State University, here's who I am, right? Queer, brown, first generation. This is what informs my pedagogy and the examples I use. But I want to know about you as well, too. So I think being open with students, right? Again, transparency and accountability, right? Being transparent with students helps foster that sense of, oh, you know what? Dr. Nate really cares about me. He really cares about what's happening in this room. I also set ground rules, right? I want, I don't want to stifle your voice or opinion, but I want us to be respectful of one another. And I want us to engage in open dialogue. I reiterate that the point of uh, an academic debate isn't to win. It's to introduce new ideas to one another and to learn how to think more critically at the end of that debate. And I think that helps it a bit. Um, students, again, um, well, as I mentioned, the students in my Selena Latinx representation in media class, they are put into small groups. So I'm a big proponent of team pedagogy. I think that working in smaller groups first, so that students get comfortable with sharing their answers, they get to practice their answers before they share it to a larger space, I think is really, really important, especially for students who might not be comfortable speaking or maybe speak very low, have a stutter, right? There's something that has made them uncomfortable with the way in which they speak. And I think those small groups work very well also for sensitive topics. In my Selena class, we talk about sexuality, we talk about gender, we talk about political ideologies, building a wall, breaking a wall, uh, putting children in cages, right? These are very sensitive topics. And so I think fostering that conversation in very small groups first and then sharing it to a larger space is something that's important. And Zoom is, I think, a really great platform for that because you're able to do the breakout rooms and you're able to come back to the larger space. But it also takes away, I think, that intimidation of the large lecture hall. It takes away the intimidation of having to stand up in front of the class and speak. Students are seeing each other in little boxes. They're more comfortable. They're in their space, right? Most of them. And so I think Zoom really does help uh, with students sharing. And the more they share, then the more they know about each other. And then the next time we're in small groups, I hit random. Boom, they're going to small groups and they're with different students now and they're learning about one another. And so they don't, I think, necessarily trust each other 100% because trust is, is something that takes time to build. But I think they trust me. And so therefore they're like, okay, I can work with these groups. And sometimes when you're talking about sensitive subjects or personal subjects, talking to strangers might be a little bit better, I think, uh, for some students, right? Not all students. So those are the things I think that can help build communities. One, being human, right? Humanizing yourself. And two, using team-based pedagogy, smaller groups, 
and then sharing to the larger group. So are you worried at all about people, about students recording, uh, recording those conversations in an, without permission and then using those recordings inappropriately or not? Yeah, I think that's at the, the back of every professor instructor's mind. I think especially right now for those of us who are teaching in, in disciplines and teaching classes that focus on what people might consider very liberal ideology, mm-hmm. I think there has been a, a target. There has been groups that have actively gotten money and they're paying students to take screenshots and take videos and putting us on watch lists. So I right. think that is always at the back of everybody's mind. And I think for students, right, it's also about accountability, right? Transparency and accountability. The students are going into that space. I think they're taking that class because they want to know about that specific subject. So if they're taking a class that's about Selena, they're, they're going to be interested in it. They're taking a class that's my median sexuality class. They're interested in, in sexuality. So I think there's already that motivation with students to want to be in that class. Um, I haven't had the opportunity yet to see a student who took the class maliciously just to get information and to kind of disrupt the classroom, that hasn't happened. But that that's always in the back of my mind. And, and there's something I built into the syllabus that San Diego State has built into their template for their syllabi that talks about, you know, recording and the use to disrupt classrooms and that it's, you know, an offense that you can turn students into students' rights and responsibilities for. I ask them and I tell them, this is what I'm doing for you. This is what I'm asking for you to do for each other. And I trust them. You know, that's, that's, that's part of, you know, also being human is, If that turns around and bites me in the butt, then it does, but I can't hold back on what I want students to do or giving them the opportunity to learn for a small little fear that one of them might be a bad apple, which is a horrible metaphor that a lot of people use, right? Um, But I think you have to trust your students if you want them to trust you as well. I I think that that's true. It's um, a lot of people have also suggested that the sort of... um, community standards asking the students to generate what the rules in the class are going to for the class are going to be is another strategy that I've heard about but what I like about what you're saying Nate is it's just so forthright it's like I assume that you're here because you want to learn this stuff we're going to be talking about all kinds of things be nice like play nice is basically what you're saying right? Be nice to each other we're all in this together I like that messaging about community I think that's super important. I think it's very important. I think when you think about allowing the students to craft rules, I think that works in a lot of classrooms. But I think when you're looking at subject areas that are a little bit more sensitive, such Mm -hmm. as sexuality, media, and race, sometimes those rules need to be, I wouldn't say imposed or pre-structured, but I think you have to help the students along with, you know, here are some examples of some rules. Do you think these are great rules? Um, because you, you don't want it to be just total chaos. Or maybe students aren't used to being in a space like that. When I started media and sexuality, media and identity, Selena, um, and Latinx representation in JMS, there was no other classes in journalism and media studies that talked about race, ethnicity, sexuality class. So students didn't know how to navigate that space. I had to come in and demonstrate that and exemplify it. Now I think students that I've taught for a couple of years will come into me in my class and be like, this is what we have to do because they already know that I reiterate the same thing over and over. Nate's about his, Dr. Nate's about his necessities, directions and deadlines. He's about transparency. He's about accountability. So they already know that. Um, but I think for students who are not used to that, they need some sort of structure. Melissa, do any of these concerns show up in in your classes or amongst your colleagues? And and what's what are the approaches that you're 
using? Yeah, so it's it's a little bit different for us because since we are providing these sessions for for teachers and trying to, we're sort of trying to get as many teachers as we can out here, you know, to come. I think we don't necessarily um, have some of the same issues. I do always try to, um, again, always talk about there's certain non-negotiables for for me. I think it's that you know. Kids are, children are capable of making sense of mathematics and we're going to approach it, everything that we do from that stance. And so kind of going from there. And so thinking about like, that's just, we're not going to be like, oh, but kids can't do that. Nope. That's, we're not going to talk about that. That's not going to happen. Like they can do this. We're, we're going to talk about how to help support them in being, being successful. So I think that there's those types of things. I think um, this may be a little bit off topic, but I think also trying to support, because they are teachers, many of them are teachers or they're studying to become teachers, they do have a lot of background knowledge. And so trying to engage them and trying to support them and realizing that they have a lot of knowledge that they can share and that we're like, I'm not the only one that's just going to talk to them and tell them things, but that I do encourage them to, in the chat, to share their experiences. And every once in a while, I have these, you know, po- like kind of stopping points in the sessions and ask them, you know, have you tried this? Has it worked for you? Can you share your experiences? And I think that that sharing that experiences helps to kind of build community, but also kind of realize that you know, they do know quite a bit and that they can share those ideas with each other. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, I always, yeah, so I, I don't think that I, I have sort of the same issues um, as, as Nate does, but yeah. Well, but, but there are questions of the culture in the, in the class or in the workshops that you're teaching, because it's a culture of um, a kind of positive you can do this about a subject where I'm sure teachers have encountered students like me who were incredibly resistant. Like, I can't do this. This is stupid. That was my, my motto when I'd get frustrated, particularly with math. So you, you've got teachers who've probably experienced that and trying to, you know, trying to create a cult to, to create a culture in your workshops of, you know, your students can do this. You can reach them. That's, it's a different kind of culture than the culture of how do we trust each other to talk about things that require some vulnerability and about which we may have some disagreements and how do we have those conversations in a respectful way. But it's still about creating a culture which is really essential to having the thing succeed. Yeah, Um, that's true. Very much so that we, it is about, you know, you you may not be doing certain things right now, but maybe, you know, hearing from your colleagues, hearing, experiencing the manipulatives, experiencing these activities in the workshop, um, hopefully will help them change their ideas of what's possible in yeah. mathematics and, and what's possible online, especially. Um, as I mentioned before, it was really, I was really worried that it was going to be like, here's just a packet of worksheets. Go yeah. spend the next two months just filling out worksheets. And that was that was really scary for me. I didn't want, you know, the, this, these months of, you know, of kids just thinking like, that's what mathematics is because that's not what it's about. It's about engaging in problem solving and critical thinking and number sense. And um, I wanted them to know that what are some of the possibilities. So did you encounter 
um, in the in the workshops for the teachers, did you the other cultural challenge that it would seem to me in in teaching teachers is um, folks who have done things in a in one way for a long time and either because they're convinced that they're doing things effectively because they've been working at this for a long time or they're overwhelmed and stressed out and don't really have bandwidth. Did you in culture, did like, what do you, how do you create a culture in, in with that population of kind of openness to approaching things differently? Yeah. I think one of the things for me is, um, and I did this this summer, which was um, I try to show videos of kids solving math and doing mathematics, because I think that just, the, the idea of seeing a child engaging in these activities is so powerful. And so it sometimes helps teachers sort of stop and think like, wow, I didn't think that they could do that, but now I'm seeing evidence. And so trying to counter their, their preconceived notions is really important. And so the use of the videos is really important. Um, my colleague, Nick Johnson, he did that with his workshops where he had, you know, over 500 teachers that came and he played these videos. And it's just, it was really impressive to see, you know, he would stop and say, so what would you do next? And so just the comments from the teachers, um, you know, some of them perhaps had some more traditional views, but um, helping teachers to see what's possible is is really important. So always bringing in student video, student work samples is really important. Um, for my sessions, it was more about engaging them in, in the tools, although I take it back. In my final session, I did have um, um, videos of kids making screencasts. And so they were creating these little videos of how they solve problems. And I think what I wanted them to see was that you know, kids are, are, they're mathematically brilliant and they have these amazing ways of making sense of mathematics. And so I always find that when you put the student work and their videos out there, it's, they're just so cute that you can't help but think <laughs> like, hmm, like maybe I should try something different sometimes. <laughs> so I think again, the, the student work samples have been really powerful. And what's really nice about Zoom and about online is that we can still share those videos with teachers. So that's really important for us. That's so cool. Nate, I'm, Melissa just said something about helping people overcome their preconceived notions. Is there, it sounds like there would be an element of that in the work that you're doing with your students too. And I'm interested in, in whether you are experiencing something similar or, or what you're doing along those lines. Yeah, I think, you know, for the kind of classes that I teach, the kind of research that I do, there's almost a paradox of sorts because you want to reassure and introduce information that has been traditionally neglected in in spaces like journalism media study for students that come from different marginalized intersectional identities, right? Their backgrounds. But at the same time, you don't want to ostracize any other student who might feel uncomfortable in those spaces. So it's kind of like, you know, what, what do you do? So for me, the first, you know, day of class is the syllabus, the, the positionality of who I am, but also asking students, you know, to realize the class that they chose to be in and the content we're going to be talking about. We talk about LGBTQ issues. And I know for a lot of uh, students, maybe that's something that's either uncomfortable or that they may not align with in either religious or political ideologies, whatever that might be. So I'm very transparent up front. I say, this is what we're doing in the class. I am not going to be giving alternative assignments for anything. This is, it is what it is. If this class is something that you want to stay in, 
I challenge you to stay in here and have an open mind. Uh, learn. You don't have to be a person leading every single discussion, but listen and, and watch the media that I'm asking you to watch and have an open mind with it. If you feel like this is something that's going to be uncomfortable or you're going to be disruptive, then this is not the class for you go somewhere else. And I'm privileged to have classes that are electives, right? These are not like mandatory classes that then students are complaining, like I'm forced to be in this class. And Dr. Nate is over here talking to me about, you know, gay drag queens that are dressed like Selena. And so um, for me, I, I know that these are electives. And it's also about giving students, I think, the opportunity to come speak with you in office hours, giving students the opportunity to choose from a list of shows. So their final project in, in the Selena class, but also my media and sexuality class is a list of shows from Netflix and Hulu. And you get to choose which one I think you're more comfortable with, right? Do you want to go with Pose? Do you want to go with One Day at a Time? Do you want to go with Moonlight, right? Where does that align with you and speak to their identities? Because I think when we think about issues like intersectionality, at some point, all of us have at least one identity that overlaps with someone else. We are qualitatively different from one another, but we can find very, I think we can find similarities with one another. And so in terms of getting students to, to be open and to talk about these sensitive subjects, it's asking them, being transparent with them, saying, this is what we're doing. I challenge you to do this. And just putting them in those small groups and having them humanize the stereotype that they feel, this uh, maybe misunderstanding that they have of a specific identity. They're being exposed to students that come from various backgrounds and identities. And I think seeing that it is something that is human, something that is a lived experience and sharing those experiences with one another makes it, I think, more personable than going and watching MSNBC, going and watching a TV show, right? So it's coupling these uh, very important mediated texts with these interactions, these social interactions that students are having in the classroom. Awesome. <laughs> that is so cool. So we have a few more minutes. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you just are burning to share or something that, Melissa, is there something that Nate said that is taking you in a particular direction that you want to talk about or vice versa? No, I, I think this is this has been super fun. Nate, it's been super fun to hear about your your class and yeah. and just learning more about it. Um, I think one thing that I also wanted to add was that I I know that my situation was sort of different in that it was professional development. I still very much take this seriously as like this is part of my teaching. Like this is part of like I can't be an effective teacher if I'm not working with teachers and and so I wanted to sort of to say that but I also wanted to say that um, we invited and we had current students into our sessions and I think what what also kind of helped motivate me was that we do I feel like we do a really wonderful job of preparing teachers for in-person in-class face-to-face and we never, ever would have has expected that this, what happened, happened. And so I feel like this was a way of giving back and trying to support students in helping them prepare for the unknown and the new normal and this online. Um, we, never, we never prepared them for that because we didn't think that was going to happen. And so I think that this was sort of our way of, again, giving back and trying to, to prepare them. And... I'm hoping that those that graduated in the, in the spring, I hope that they have found jobs and some of them may be, you know, in schools right now that are online. And so I'm hoping that this has, hopefully was just a, a small way of, of helping them to get ready for this, this new normal. Awesome. Thank you. What about you, Nate? Final, final thoughts? Yeah, I have two. And the first one is I think everything Melissa said is phenomenal, especially how 
forthcoming you are to be able to to share what you've learned with other professors and instructors. I find that not all instructors are the same way. And I think that that's part of our our business, right? Part of who we are is being able to say, this is what I did right. And this is what I did wrong, right? Share your successes and failures with others. And I think instructors too, as they move into this virtual migration, shouldn't be afraid to also share their failures and their successes with others. Ask for help. Some people have taught online a lot. Some people have not. Some people, you know, as, as I was working with the Summer Institute, I found that there was a lot of instructors who really didn't do a lot of stuff. I mean, Blackboard was just a space that students were at where they didn't put grades, but everything else they did was pen and paper. And they did, you know, in class, all these things. And when they were asked to transfer all of that stuff online, they were so scared. They were just anxious about it because they had never done it before. So we're all at different levels of comfort and knowledge about technology. So I think ask for help. The CTL is a great resource. ITS is a great resource. People in your college and your across the university, right? Those are great resources as well, too. And I think that's important to be able to to share with each other those kinds of things, right? I don't want to keep my little meme-making activity just a secret for me so that I'm doing this and students know, like, this is a great idea that everybody can do, and it's really easy for a one-day lesson to help you achieve those things. So be open and, and help one another, but also don't be afraid to ask for help because I think that's important. And the last thing I just wanted to mention was, was assessment, right? We, we do a lot of assessments, I think, in class to be able to assess whether or not students have met the learning outcome, whether or not students have met the goals that you outlined for that specific assignment or activity. And I think we also need to have a bit of a, an assessment on ourselves um, as instructors, right? And I think the students are the perfect people to ask. So I ask my students to do a goals reflection at the beginning of the semester and then another one at the end of the semester. And there's only three questions. The first one is, what are your goals and expectations for yourself this semester? What are they for the course? And then what are they for me? And then at the end of the semester, the three questions are, did you meet those goals for yourself? Did you meet them for the course? Did I meet those expectations? Because then it helps one at the beginning for me to see these are what they're looking for. They're looking for compassion, or maybe they're looking for more information about a specific identity that they don't hear in other courses. But then at the end of the semester also helps me realize, did I help them? And did I help foster that environment that's going to help them achieve not just the course goals, but also their personal goals? One student told me just the other day in, in, in their goal reflection was no one's ever asked me to think about what, you know, I've had this trajectory and graduate by, by in four years and this, this and this, but no one's really stopped and made me think about wait, how am I going to get there? What do I want from my professor? What do I want from this course? You know, it's always about I want an A and then graduate. Right. And I think that's important too. And I think at the end of the semester too, to sit and reflect and not be so hard on yourself and think, wow, we pulled this off in a pandemic. The end of spring 2020 was such a remarkable experience to see how many faculty and staff came together. Because, I mean, the people that made this happen were the faculty and staff. It wasn't the admin, it wasn't the CSU, it wasn't the chancellor's office. It was the people that were on the ground working day to day with those students. Those instructors took those courses and migrate online. Those instructors worked every day with those students to help not just teach them during the pandemic, but calm them, soothe them, pass along the information from the ECRTS, right? They were the ones that did it. And for me, looking back, thinking, oh my God, I'm exhausted, this pandemic is crazy. And then thinking, wait, what did I just accomplish? What did <laughs> in this pandemic, I think that is so important to know that, you know, when push comes to shove, our instructors are there to help students, whether they're uncomfortable, whether they're not knowledgeable about those technological spaces, they still pulled it out in a semester that was almost impossible to do. And everyone should be congratulated and, and a pat on the back for that, because every single professor, instructor, adjunct, staff, faculty member pulled it out in 2020. 
I think we can end with that very amen to that. Like, absolutely. Thank you both so much.